Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We do have a good martini for you today, but then we've got two crazies to talk about. So just prepare yourself for that. Uh, Jim, we said at the end of yesterday's Three Martini Lunch that there are certain issues that Republicans should be talking about early and often as we go into the final months of this midterm election season. The economy, and I would throw energy certainly into that as well. And then also the border and crime and education. And education is where we're going to camp out here for our good martini in a couple of different ways. Uh, First of all, the free beacon with the story out of Arizona, where I really haven't seen this anywhere else. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey signed the nation's most expansive school voucher bill last week, ensuring all students in the Grand Canyon state can attend the school of their choice. The bill, which creates scholarship accounts for Arizona families to redirect funds from their child's public school education toward private school tuition or homeschooling, passed the House and Senate at the end of June. Ducey's signature made Arizona the first state in America to offer universal school choice. Uh, Both state and federal school choice initiatives have met opposition from teachers unions, of course, who call such initiatives schemes to defund public school programs. Well, maybe if your product was better, people wouldn't want to leave. Uh, Jim, this also comes at the time we're seeing a a couple of different polls. Number one, in a poll commissioned by teachers unions, 39% of Americans believe Republicans are the better party to handle education, 38% for the Democrats. And that used to be lopsided very much in the other direction. Meanwhile, in a new Gallup poll, Americans, only 28% of them say they've got a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the country's public school systems. The all-time low was 26% in 2014. Uh, So, uh, Jim, the opportunity is there for, A, public schools to improve themselves, but also competition for education. People shouldn't be stuck with schools that aren't getting the job done. And it looks like Arizona is a trailblazer here. So it'll be fun to see how this works. Indeed, Greg, this is really good news. And I feel like there's a, there's real significance to this occurring in the state of Arizona. Um, you know, you might have figured that some other state would have done this by now. And when a significant conservative policy reform comes along and it gets enacted um, up in some state that's perceived as being very heavily Republican, Kansas, Utah, um, not to pick on people in those states, those are some great states, but it, I think my suspicion is, is that a lot of people in the rest of the country look at it and say, ah, you know, Utah, those crazy Mormons, or ah, it's Kansas. They've always been Republicans. They're always doing these right-wing things. Never mind the fact that Kansas has had a couple of Democratic governors in recent years. Um, the fact that it's Arizona, the fact that this is a state that has two Democratic senators, at least for now, and both of them won by narrow margins, but they were, you know, this is the state of Barry Goldwater. This is the state of John McCain. This was, re- up until fairly recently, pretty darn Republican territory. And then it started turning into a purple state. Joe Biden won the state narrowly, but he did win it. Uh, Democrats have had some more success in the House races and things like that. So, uh, you know, Phoenix has a lot of suburbs and they suburban voters are usually, you know, swingy. They, they're interested in Democrats when they get frustrated with this. So the fact that Arizona did this kind of is a signal, one, to every other Republican state, a certain sense of like, well, wait, why haven't you done that? Wait a second. If Arizona can do that, of course, a whole bunch of other states that are more culturally and politically conservative uh, can do something like that. And also, I think it makes it reasonable for states that are seen as purple as well. Um, you know, I don't know if I, I don't know if Ohio and Florida still would count in that category. 
Uh, Georgia might be another one people would put in that category, which we'll talk a little bit more about later in this podcast. Um, maybe Virginia, maybe uh, something like, let's say, like Colorado. All of a sudden, this becomes possible because Arizona, which is not necessarily perceived as a crazy state, went out and did this, and we will see the effects of this. And my suspicion is you will see a lot more satisfied parents, much happier with the school their children is going to, because now they have choice. If they like the public school, they can keep sending their kids to the public school. But if they don't like their public school, they can go and switch to a private school or charter school or something like that. So all in all, this is an important reform. And I think, and I'm hoping that this is not the last domino to fall, that these sorts of things, you see all kinds of conservative policy reforms generally tend to start to spread from one state to another pretty quickly. Exactly. This is exactly how federalism is supposed to work, right? Uh, different states take different approaches to things and the ones that work get copied in other places. So we'll see how well it works in Arizona and what other states uh, might copy that. You're right about Virginia. Glenn Youngkin is certainly trying to move in that direction. It's a little more incremental with the Democrats controlling one of the chambers of the legislature, but uh, I think he definitely has the right idea on that. And Jim, the basic idea here is that competition makes everyone better, and you have to wonder why certain people don't want competition. (laughs) Is it because uh, these teachers unions and some others don't think they're going to win that competition? Curious. Greg, competition is hard. <laughs> it's much easier when you just, you, all the parents have to send their kids to the school because they don't have a choice. <laughs> I w- we would love if because of under a, under a state government mandate, you had to listen to this podcast. <laughs> Greg and I could make it as lousy as we wanted to. You wouldn't have any choice. It probably wouldn't be any good. People would be frustrated if they had to listen to it, but they would. But they don't. We have lots of other podcasts out there. So thanks for listening to us. But also, we have to try to make it good every day so that you keep listening. Yeah, that's the goal. We're going to make it better, and hopefully your kid's education is going to get better in Arizona and beyond. All right, let's talk about one other thing. Not only does Jim get to talk about good news today, he gets to do it from the comfort of his ex-chair. And look, many of us spend more time every day in our office chair than in our cars, certainly, or even our beds. That's why it's so important to invest in the right chair to spend those hours with the right level of support and comfort to get the most productivity out of your day. X-chair has made my time at my desk not only more productive, It's honestly my favorite place to sit for any reason. Not only does X-Chair's patented Dynamic Variable Lumbar, or DVL, offer the ultimate customized support, but my X-Chair can even give me a massage or heat up or cool down. And now, thanks to X-Chair's new FS360 armrests, I can even adjust my armrest to the perfect position. All of these unique X-Chair features help the hours at my desk fly by in complete comfort. And that's why I love my X-Chair. So go to xchairmartini.com now. That's the letter X, chair, M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 per month. xchairmartini.com. All right, Jim, on to our first crazy martini now. And for that, we go to the sports world. Uh, There was uh, quite a bit of chatter just a couple of days ago when uh, Philadelphia Phillies star baseball player JT Realmuto couldn't go with his team to Toronto uh, to play the Blue Jays. And that's because there's a vaccine mandate to enter Canada. Well, JT Realmuto was not exactly apologetic for that. But now there's a bigger problem for the Kansas City Royals. Ten of their players cannot come in to Canada to play the Blue Jays because of the same policy. And that includes uh, at least one all-star. But obviously, ten players out of a baseball roster is a significant percentage. And Jim, I want to channel my inner Allen Iverson here and say, they don't have the virus. We're not talking about the virus. 
we're talking about the vaccine. So they don't have the vaccine. And so uh, even though they seem to be perfectly healthy, uh, thanks, Justin Trudeau, they can't go do their job. Greg, when you said that, I thought you were going to start a fight in a bowling alley. <laughs> uh, remembering some of the more. Look, Alan Iverson was at Georgetown back when I was at that other university in Washington, D.C. Iverson ended up being very good and having a very successful career, and he seems to have his head on straight now. So, But I remember all of the Alan Iverson scandals. Anyway, um, what we're kind of left with here, I, I, this, I, I mentioned this towards the tail end of today's morning jolt. I, I saw this on my Twitter feed. And I was kind of left scratching my head. Like, we're, we're still dealing with this. It's it's July 2022. We've not only you know been through two years of this, and, and not only we you know I actually say one year and change of the vaccines being available. We've also been through the Omicron wave. Uh, you know, we've all been living with COVID 19. My guess is we haven't talked about it on this podcast in a while. Uh, we you know my guess is for lots of people it hasn't really been something they've been thinking about unless maybe somebody they know got it and something and. Uh, I walked through the case numbers and the death numbers, which might be a little higher than you'd expect at this point in the pandemic um, in today's morning, jolt. But you kind of figured baseball would have had this stuff, you know, worked out a long time ago. And apparently all the players were informed early in the season. Look, this is the policy of Toronto. This is the policy of Canada. We in baseball cannot overrule them. If you want to play in Toronto, you got to be vaccinated. And a certain number of players like, okay, I just won't play in Toronto then. Now, I don't think the Blue Jays are doing particularly well, but if the Blue Jays were hosting the World Series, I wonder if these guys would be quickly lining up and getting a jab because they didn't want to play in just uh, just the home <laughs> games. Uh, or So I, you know, it, it is intriguing that this is still causing these kinds of headaches. It is kind of frustrating. It seems kind of silly. These are baseball players. They're generally in peak physical condition. Um, and, you know, they, they accept the risks. And the odds of them bringing COVID-19 into uh, Toronto or into Canada are not particularly high. At minimum, you'd think, well, could you keep them uh, quarantined to the hotel while they're there? They're only going to be in there for a couple of days, I assume. Like, you know, you want to do some sort of that. But no, 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 I can't let them in. Can't let them do this or anything like that. Um, it seemed like when we saw the, the ludicrousness of the Kyrie Irving circumstance with the New York Knicks, in which he was going to play in road games for Knicks, but he was not going to play in home games because he could not comply with, I'm not sure what it was, the Madison Square Garden rules, the New York City rules. Yeah, he played for the, the he, city he, rules, right? He was playing for the Nets. Greg, as far as I'm concerned, the Nets never left New Jersey, and Yinka Dare is their greatest player. Um, <laughs> one of these days he'll have an assist. No. Rest in peace, Yinka Dare. The, anyway, the point of all this, it does seem kind of strange, and this does indicate that here we are, everybody's, you know, chances are almost everybody's had COVID. Uh, if you don't, if you haven't had COVID, I do wonder if at some point you got a very mild dose and your body just generated the antibodies. Remember the number of people who get it and who are asymptomatic. Uh, Omicron is more contagious, but not as strong as previous versions. So I basically, between the vaccinations and natural immunity from people who've had it before, you think all this would be in our rearview mirror. It's not, and it's kind of frustrating. I imagine this will come and go. I imagine the whole wide world isn't paying a ton of attention to a series between the Royals and the Blue Jays, but it is an indicator of how some of these regulations stayed in place and are still causing headaches nearly two and a half years after the, the pandemic. I guess, yeah, coming up on two and a half years since the pandemic began. Yeah, it, it's wild. The Royals are in dead last in the AL Central, so I don't think this is going to make or break their season. The Blue Jays are tied for third place in the American League East, but everybody in that division is over 500, but they're still 15 and a half games behind the New York Yankees, who are blowing away everybody in the American League. Uh, Jim, also just in this note, Andrew Benintendi, the all-star in the Royals, he's going to lose these four games. It's going to cost him $186,813. Can you imagine missing four days of work 
<laughs> that's or working four days and making that much. Either way you look at it, good gig if you. Uh, can you know, get that's it. either a really principled stand, or a bunch of people are like, eh, that's kind of stupid. <laughs> Get the jab, make $186,000. That'd be fine with me. And you mentioned Inca Dare, who's one of the legends of the George Washington, I guess you have to call him the people who predated the founding of the nation now since Colonials is out. So uh, I don't... No longer Colonials. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't like that nickname when I was there, but I got to be honest. You know, uh, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, there was an op-ed in the Washington Post the other day from a student saying it should no longer be called George Washington University. It should be renamed Frederick Douglass University. Now, Frederick Douglass is a fantastic, you know, historic figure. And if you wanted to start a new university saying, you know, Frederick Douglass, we should have one named after him. Fine. That's I would have no objection to that. But, you know, remember, as soon as they started tearing down Confederate statues and certain folks, including including President Trump, said, just you wait, they're going to end up tearing down statues of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and all that. Well, here we are. Uh, the left has lived down to the uh, wildest and most exaggerated stereotypes its foes could imagine. Way to go, folks. <laughs> no matter how low your expectations are, they can always somehow slip underneath them. That's, that's how the left works these days. All right. Well, let's talk about something uh also, not good, but maybe it can be stopped. Uh, and that is uh, some legislation up on Capitol Hill. Look, our country's being rocked by soaring inflation, lackluster leadership, and chaos generally on the world stage. Americans need their legislators to focus on the issues that matter and to ease the economic pain we are clearly all feeling. Instead, senators like Amy Klobuchar are pushing a big government takeover of America's tech industry through progressive regulations that would worsen inflation and make important digital services like Amazon Prime more expensive and harder to use. Conservatives must block progressive pet projects that will raise prices and undermine our world standing. These lawmakers need to keep American innovation the best in the world. NetChoice wants you to join it in telling Congress to stop rising prices and reject progressive tech regulations like Senate Resolution 2992. Learn more about the fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. If we've learned anything from the 2020 election, it's that while the process of counting electoral votes is straightforward, the rules outlined in the Electoral Count Act of 1887 are vague and antiquated. There shouldn't have been any question about whether the vice president could or should have changed the election results. Imagine the next election full of questions about vote irregularities, debates, and recounts of key state votes, except this time it's Vice President Harris being urged to interpret her role in the process as one where she has the right to determine which electoral votes count. Why? Because the Electoral Count Act is too ambiguous. This is why the Presidential Election Project aims to clearly define the role of the vice president and ensure that the role is beyond question. The project urges you to sign up for more information about why reform of the Electoral Count Act is so important. Go to presidentialelectionproject.com to take the first step in learning more. That's presidentialelectionproject.com. All right, Jim, on to our final martini and our second crazy and, you know, it seemed like, until very, very recently, I guess, that ticket splitting was kind of a relic of American politics. You just didn't see it that much anymore, except maybe in some very purple states or even bluish states where people like Susan Collins find a way to survive, that kind of thing. Uh, but if you looked at the results in Virginia last year, I mean, the results in the governor's race, lieutenant governor and attorney general were all pretty much uh, in line. There were not many ticket splitting examples whatsoever. However, when it comes to the state of Georgia, it looks like we may very well be headed in that direction because according to a new poll from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Brian Kemp, 
the Republican governor of Georgia, is up by seven over Stacey Abrams, 52 to 45. And so, you know, there aren't a lot of undecideds in that race, it would seem. But also in the Senate race, Raphael Warnock up by three against Herschel Walker. So there are a number of people who are willing to split the ticket here. And then there's a column that basically says that. You've got Republicans who just don't think Walker is ready for prime time, but they're more than willing to support Brian Kemp. And you even got some Democrats, despite the fact that Brian Kemp's conservative on basically every issue, the fact that he, uh, you know, became uh, someone that um, Trump got mad at in 2020, uh, has some of them voting for him as well. So therefore, Stacey Abrams is pretty far behind and Herschel Walker's fallen behind as well. So what do you make of the fact that this could happen in Georgia, this 10 point difference? Yeah, there are times where you look at a, a you know large pattern of ticket splitting, and the you know two candidates seem fairly similar, um, and you're kind of like, okay, well that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Unfortunately, in this circumstance, it seems within the realm of possibilities. I don't think you're going to go as far as saying it's plausible. Actually, I'll go one step further and say yes, it is plausible. Brian Kemp is an incumbent. Brian Kemp has already held off. Uh, the primary challenge that was driven by animosity by Trump. I think there was this clear message from Georgia Republicans. Look, Trump, get past 2020. We're not upset with Brian Kemp about that. He stood up for election integrity. He, you know, When the uh, Major League Baseball uh, moved the All-Star game, he didn't back down. He insisted the state was right. We had high turnout in our primaries. Our elections are free and fair. Move on to it. And oh, by the way, we really don't want Stacey Abrams to be our next governor. Um, you may recall there was a kind of offhand comment from Trump suggesting that maybe Stacey Abrams wouldn't be so bad, which I think probably drove a wedge between him and a bunch of Georgia Republicans. Herschel Walker, I think he began this race with a lot of voters being uh, at minimum curious and having uh, warm, fuzzy feelings about him for the national championship that he won while he was at the University of Georgia. Unfortunately, I, I, I wish it were otherwise, but I, Herschel Walker is a weak candidate. He just doesn't do well, whether it's interviews or these speeches, he just speaks in these very generic bromides. Um, some interesting leaks allegedly from his own campaign, suggesting that his own campaign staff is frustrated with them. There's all the talk about kids out of wedlock and stuff like that. Um, I, I think I'm more, much more worried about whether Herschel Walker can just go out there and make the argument for himself and make the argument for himself based on policy, based on issues, based on what's on people's minds, inflation, energy, gas prices, food prices, immigration, all that kind of stuff. I heard some GOP consultant who um, was asked about him and almost immediately started talking about college football. And that's great, we all love that, good for you. He was one of the greatest college football players of all time, but it's 2022, people wanna hear about the future. People wanna hear about what he's going to do. Raphael Warnock is not unstoppable. And in fact, I think he's a pretty flawed democratic incumbent, but he does have the advantages of incumbency. So, and then the other thing is you look at the, the history of the polling in this race, you know, Walker started out very popular, uh, ahead by three, ahead by four in, in April. By late April, the Survey USA poll had Warnock up five, uh, East Carolina University did a poll of the state, had a tie. The Quinnipiac poll that had Warnock up 10, I'm willing to say that's, that smells funny. And you look back, I, I mentioned this earlier in the week, that if you look back, Quinnipiac said three times last year, the South Carolina uh, Senate race was a, was a tie, including in late September. Lindsey Graham won by 10 points. I think Quinnipiac just doesn't have good sample stuff. You know, Warnock being up by three, that sounds pretty plausible. That that does not sound like a crazy result. And the idea of Kemp running significantly better, unfortunately, yeah, I think that is a possibility. Would I count Walker out? No, not at all. 
Uh, but, you know, like I said, it's a good Republican year. Georgia is a pretty Republican state. Um, but I think candidate quality matters. And I think it's you know, abundantly and frustratingly clear now that Herschel Walker just isn't a good communicator. And that's kind of an important part of running for Senate. So we'll see how things shake out here. But I got to tell you, you know, not winning a state like Georgia would probably greatly complicate the uh, hopes for Republicans winning the Senate. That's one that, you know, you look at the history of that state. Republicans really thought they were going to have, if not in the bag, a really good shot at. And you'd hate to think that they botched that opportunity by nominating Herschel Walker. Yeah, I think that's the lowest hanging fruit of a Democratic-held seat right now. A lot of people are optimistic about Nevada. Arizona, I think it's all going to depend on who comes out of that primary. Um, New Hampshire is also going to be a a chance, but then there's a lot of defense to play. We've talked about Pennsylvania a lot. Uh, There's Ohio, there's Wisconsin, uh, and some other uh, races around the country as well. So it's going to be difficult. Uh, But the good news, Herschel Walker and Herschel Walker's team, is you got three and a half months to get much, much better at this, assuming you're going to have debates and so forth. Take some time. Take a few days off, study the briefing books, uh, figure out uh, where things are, or just figure out how to craft your message better if you already have strong opinions on these issues uh, so people have more confidence in you. Because it's a very winnable race, and like you said, it could be critical into who controls the Senate next year. So, did not expect... Practice. uh, (laughs) He's familiar with that. Practice. Yes, exactly. Let's get the reps in. So uh, There you go. Exactly. Training camp. (laughs) Right, two days. It's July. Let's get those two days going. Uh, Jim, uh, let's see what we got tomorrow. Talk to you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch if you don't already, and tell your friends about us as well. Also, thank you very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, remember you can get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday, and please join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Arizona Senate candidate Blake Masters joins me to discuss why he believes it's game over for the U.S. if the Democrats win the midterms. I'm Sarah Carter on the latest Sarah Carter Show. I'll also ask Masters about President Trump and Elon Musk and tell you how President Biden is sending our precious energy reserves to Hunter Biden's buddies in China. Join me. Follow the Sarah Carter Show on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.